I'm Kirk Harnack. On This Week in Radio Tech, it's Tom Ray, Chris Tobin, and Chris Tarr. And we're talking engineering from the trenches and the foxholes. It's a War Stories episode up next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Radio Tech, Episode 80, recorded April 27, 2011. War Stories. This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Telos Systems on the web at telos-systems.com. It's time for This Week in Radio Tech. Hello there. I'm Kirk Harnack, and very glad that you're along with us. You have, yeah, you've, you've tuned into a dangerous program. It's a program where propeller-headed geeky engineers talk about, you know, engineering stuff. And if you're interested in that, well, we welcome you in. I'm glad you're here. I want to introduce uh, my uh, partners in crime. First of all, from the Hudson Valley of New York, it's the chief engineer for WOR and VP of Engineering for Buckley Broadcasting, Mr. Tom Ray. Hi, Tom. You know, Kirk, you didn't tell me you wanted the propeller hats. I would have got mine. <laughs> you know, anyway, and, and, and you know, eesh, I just thought that tonight, in, in honor of uh, my hero, Donald Trump, and he's my hero because of the hair he wears, because I can't wear that, that kind of hair. Mon he's not your hero. He's your hero. There you go. But I thought, uh, you know, since Obama showed me, showed me his, I'm going to show you mine. See, what? I was born. Oh. I was not hatched. There it is. Certificate of birth. <laughs> and look, yep. there's a seal up here. See? The seal of the city of Hartford, Connecticut. Wow. So Wow. Well, Tom, so I'm, was, I'm glad uh, you're with us. Uh, you're you're actually in fine company because uh, I also brought for the show, I brought my birth certificate. All right. Yeah. St. Louis, so Missouri. So we have two of us who are official now. Two of us That's are. That's good. Yeah. Uh, are we qualified to be president? We're qualified to be president, and we're qualified to be on this show. Even better. <laughs> okay. That's more necessary right now. Hey, let's, uh, let's move along and see who else is with us. How about Chris Tobin, the best-dressed engineer in radio from Manhattan, New York? Hey, Chris. Hello, hello. I, uh, yeah, I don't have my uh, documents with me. I was advised by counsel I should just stick with the uh, visual. So uh, for those of you listening only, there's nothing to worry about. You're not missing a thing on the visual side. Uh, other than that, uh, the president here is in town today, uh, this evening, doing some fundraising. So it's, uh, it's actually fun. He and I share the same birth date. So it's, uh, I don't need to produce anything. Awesome. Again, maybe well, maybe Donald Trump should call me and then I'll say, okay, fine, I'll show you. <laughs> Wait, do you share the same birth day of the year or the, exact, the same date of birth? Everything. Really? Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I, I suppose we should bow to Mr. Tobin then. No. Wow. No, that's quite they, interesting. Because he's, well, he's, he's really born, official. A lot of people born on the same day, but uh, it'd be interesting to compare timelines of Mr. Tobin's uh, career and uh, President Obama's career. That, that could be interesting. Well, yeah, I did not become the president of the Harvard Law School or anything like that or the law club, so I didn't follow that track. But yeah, well, I'm, glad I'm glad you're here. But, yeah, but hey, he's look. a great organizer <laughs> of electrons, so we're all set. <laughs> Yes, there you I, go. I called you guys together, and you showed up, and President Obama did not. So, there you go. <laughs> he turned right. down your invitation. Let's turn the camera out to uh, McWanago, Wisconsin, and say hi to Chris Tarr. Hello, Chris. 
Hello there. The uh, birthing unit on the planet that I come from does not issue certificates, so <laughs> I can't help you there. Uh, the other thing is, is I had my BD, but on orders of the FAA, the last time I put it on there, because I am an engineer and I modified it, uh, the FAA no longer allows me to wear my beanie with the propeller on it. <laughs> All right. Well, we're off to a rather auspicious start here. Oh, by the way, Chris, uh, uh, you, uh, you're qualified to be here because you do engineering for some uh, interesting radio stations. Demanding radio I do. I, I am the uh, director of engineering for intercoms radio stations in Madison and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, there are five FMs at 1 a.m. And you do IT work, too, I think. I do do IT work. Absolutely. I do everything. Right. I mop the floors. I unplug the toilets. Isn't that so typical for engineers? You know, something goes wrong. Right? Hey, this handle's broken on this door. Call Chris over here. He'll fix it. You unplug the toilets? Do you have electric <laughs> toilets in the place? <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. They're, they're very high power. Oh, oh, good. Well, good. Then we're all set. Hey, Kirk, you said, you said we were going to talk about engineering stuff. Now, I, the, the note you sent out before said we were going to talk about the royal wedding, and I'm disappointed. <laughs> actually, actually, we need to have an episode where we talk about the things that we've been asked to do that have nothing to do with electrons. Cool. That's that, Very that, cool. Yeah. yeah. That'd be fun. A friend of mine was tasked with driving the station van delivering flowers three days a week. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he had the appreciation of the uh, of the man of the management. Hey, well, uh, welcome into the show. I want to mention that the show is being brought to you by my friends at Telos. Also happens to be my employer, but they approached me about sponsoring the show, and I said yes. Thank you very much. Cool. So we'll tell you about Telos a little bit later on in in the show. So thanks a lot. Hey, we're going to get right into the war stories in a minute. There are a couple of topical topicals to uh, to, to topical about, um, and we're going to hit a couple of them here real quick. You know that all oh, this. Um, uh, talking in Congress and the uh, uh, brouhaha and the kerfuffle over uh, funding public radio. Well, it's official uh, on one front, and that is the uh, PTFP. That is the Public Telecommunications Facility Program. And that's a function of the NTIA. Uh, what, is it? what does the NTIA stand for? The National Telecommunications... What? I forget. Anybody know? Industry Association? Oh, I um, NTIA. The NTIA's public telecommunications facility uh, program is dead. I should know. I'm sorry. I don't. Maybe the chat room will tell us. But anyway, administration. Ah, information administration. Yes, I knew it was a government uh, uh, function. Well, anyway, um, they're um, they're not funded. You know, they funded about twenty and a half million dollars in 2011. Now, th this this is a program where radio and I, I think TV stations too apply for grants, PTFP grants, so they can buy new equipment. Uh, and maybe there's other things they can buy too. But uh, uh, hey, the company I work for, Telos, uh, typically would get some business from radio stations uh, being granted their grant money from PTFP and then being able to spend it on various infrastructure upgrades, you know, consoles, audio processors, hybrids, and talk show systems, uh, you know, a fair amount of, uh, of business. That's been defunded. Uh, what you guys are all not in public radio you're in in commercial radio but do you know much about this program and how it's going to affect our friends in, in public radio i would guess kirk that it would it would affect them greatly um yeah, especially the smaller stations you know not not someplace like new york city or boston or uh you know los angeles or chicago or places like that but i would think that in uh, in much smaller areas I and mean, i have a friend who's a uh, who's chief engineer of a fairly it's fairly sizable public station but it's in a very small market and they rely heavily on on grants and on their fund drives uh without that grant i mean they really have no other way to make up that uh, make up that shortfall 
Interesting. Well, um, I don't know how you know public stations. Uh, a lot of them are resourceful, and they'll find other ways to get uh, get some funding. But I know this is a blow uh, to the radio stations, and it's a you know it's a little bit of a cut to equipment manufacturers like my employer, who uh, you know look forward to some orders every year from PTFP grants. Um, I want to move on to a different subject real quick here and talk about this automation litigation. It's threatening broadcasters. Uh, for the story from Radio World Online, uh, rwonline.com, uh, broadcasters are preparing for a legal battle over automation technology that's become the backbone, obviously, of on-air operations at many U.S. stations, probably just about all of them. At least, you know, not just automatic automation, but just playing back commercials and, and spots from a computer. A company called Mission Abstract Data, LLC, they're doing business as Digimedia. Well, they filed a complaint in the U.S. District Court for the District of Delaware alleging patent infringement by various broadcast groups, including CBS Radio, Beasley Broadcasting, Cox Radio, Greater Media, Cumulus, Town Square Media, and Intercom. I noticed my company, Delta Radio, wasn't in, uh, named, but we don't have any pockets. Uh, in all, nearly 900 radio stations are directly involved. The plaintiff claims that it holds patents for using an all-digital computer hard drive-based system for music storage and playback for broadcast. That's pretty wide, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty, Most patents it, are it, these days. But, but if, you t if you take a look, uh, Kirk, it's real interesting that the patent was applied for, I think, in either 94 or 95. And, I mean, for our, st our station in Hartford had a, had a uh, computer-based automation system on the air in 1989. Yeah. So how, how can you patent something that's already working? Um, Pre-existing artwork, it's known as. Yeah, well, well, well that, that and I also met a guy once uh, at, a, at a smaller station. Um, who was a bit of, a bit ahead of his time? He had a Unix-based system that he built. I mean, I mean, it was literally breadboarded. It was uh, this room I'm sitting in here is about ten by twelve. It took up a ten by twelve room with. I mean, we're talking, you know, hard drives this big. Uh, you know, he built this in the early 1980s. So I mean, <laughs> digital automation's been around for a while. So, and and why would you go after the stations? And how could the station be held liable? At least this is how I think. How could the station be held liable if they bought it from a from from a valid a valid company? Yeah. And that's yeah, that was my question. All of this when I heard that is is you know the, the broadcast stations bought the technology from other people. We didn't build it. We didn't make it. We didn't create it. We're just consumers. It's just I would think it'd be akin of you know if somebody. Uh, you know, sue, sued somebody over a DVD player, you know, over the patent and decided to sue everybody who's ever bought a DVD player for, for using it and try to get money from them. I, I, that part of it, I, I'm, I, you know, I don't pretend to be a legal scholar at all. So, I, you know, there's probably something that, that I'm missing, but that seems odd to me. Well, uh, yeah. I'll continue with what Radio World is reporting. They've confirmed that at least some broadcasters have been contacted by parties representing Mission Abstract Data, asking them to sign licensing agreements. Um, though the complaint goes after broadcasters rather than the manufacturers, suppliers are involved. Uh, several sources confirmed that at least one telephone conference call between some defendants and automation vendors reviewing a possible defense strategy has taken place. And I either got an email or saw a Twitter or maybe something on Facebook. Yeah, so many media choices nowadays uh, on my computer screen. But um, uh, saying, hey, did you work? for Scott Studios prior to such and so a date? Uh, or did you work for uh, this other company prior to such and so a date? If you would, uh, would you, you know, please uh, write back with recollection of what you did and what we were making at the time. 
So uh, yeah, the art the art existed beforehand. When uh, uh, Tom, you mentioned you guys were using automation uh, in the uh, in '89. Was that a Smarts brand system? Do you remember? Was it, it something else? It, it sure was. It was a, a small Smarts brand system. It was only in the AM studio. Um, the only reason the, the, the reason we bought it, uh, we were going towards more satellite-based programming on the AM at the time, and uh, it was a heck of a lot better to do it that way than to load cart machines. Was it? Um was it hard drive? Because this the, the complaint here, at least Radio World quotes it as being hard drive based. Uh, was it cassette based, perchance, or was it? No, no, no. It had, a, it had a hard drive. Okay. And did it have audio on the hard drive? Oh, it had, yes, it had audio on the audio files on the hard drive. Uh, the hard drive also ran the. Uh, uh, it, it was DOS. It ran the uh, the program itself. You know, the program would load, and all the audio was stored on the hard drive. Yeah. So back uh, back in 1992, I was using uh, I don't remember now what company made it, but uh, is it System Sentry? I seem to remember it actually was kind of a hybrid that not only controlled uh, tape and cart-based automation, but also you could store audio on its hard drive as well. I seem to recall playing with that machine too uh, back then. You know, speaking of, uh, well, I want to touch for just a second on on some of the these hybrid systems from back in in the late '80s. Do you remember an automation system based on? I want to say based on a a Commodore 64 that would run modified cassette decks that had um, uh, reflective tape or their oxide scraped off between songs or between cuts. And this automation didn't have a hard drive; it was run on a Commodore 64. Uh, you'd, I guess you'd load it with a with a cassette player, load the program in, and then it would control cassette decks. Anybody remember that? Really? I heard no. about it, but I did not use one. <laughs> okay, that was a bad dream I had about it. Maybe, uh, and then. Then, of course, there were automation systems for several years. Back when hard drive technology was still too expensive to really put a lot of songs on, you had hard drives that would, um, uh, you, you had a computer automation system that would run um, various different CD jukeboxes, like a popular one from Sony and uh, a couple others a, a, as well. So they would... You know, sure, the, 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 uh, the, the Arrakis Digilink system did that, used uh, six CD yeah. changers. But, you know, one of the things, it's funny you bring that up, one of the things I remember from those systems, uh, especially with the, the Digilink and, and uh, you know, I think uh, uh, Digital DJ was another one that played, so you, mostly used for satellite programming, where you'd have satellite music and then the local drop-ins were played off the hard drive, is that the hard drives at the time were so small that they used really aggressive data compression. So what you'd hear is it'd be this, really bad audible difference between the local content and the satellite content. So, you know, you, you'd have, uh, you know, the song fading in crystal clear stereo, then you'd have the local ID, your local station here, playing the greatest music of all time, you know, the, as the satellite uh, DJ. Would yeah. And then they'd stop talking and they go to the local commercials and be like, and we'll be back with more music after this. Stop by Joe's and downtown. You know, yeah. Well, back then, I think, you know, what you're primarily referring to is the early sound cards were only eight bits of, of bit depth. So, you know, the, the signal noise was just awful. And then the sample rate was uh, a lot less. They were typically sampling at either 11 kilohertz or, or 20, uh, you know, 15 or 22 kilohertz to give you 11 kilohertz of bandwidth. But, yeah, that was, I think, mostly a function of the sound card. You said the data reduction, you know, back then they didn't uh, have or didn't implement sophisticated data reduction like, like MPEG-2. Uh, they typically just used uh, AD, you know, some form of, of uh, ADPCM, adaptive delta pulse code modulation. So uh, instead of instead of coding um, every sample in a in, you know in, on an eight bit basis, they would code the first sample 
and then code the delta to the next sample and the delta to the next sample and the delta to the, to the next sample. And I don't know if you ever had like in, in video, we have this notion of keyframes where, you know, ever so many frames or ever so many seconds will will write the whole screen again to, uh, you, you know, uh, and then after that, we'll just write the delta of what's going on on the screen with various algorithms in, involved. But then finally, we came, you know, somebody came along with uh, MPEG uh, and APTX also, uh, compression. On on uh, on the sound card. Sound cards were expensive. The hard drives were expensive, but we could store audio with uh, you know with better quality on on those things. Um, and back to this, the, the first station that uh, I owned in uh, Cleveland, Mississippi, we had the, a hybrid automation system um, where it would run CD players, and the commercials and jingles would come off of a 360 systems. What was it called? Was it called a, a Digicart? It used a a you know, some kind of a Bernoulli uh, disc. That was Digicart, yeah, Digicart. Yeah, okay. So it didn't have a, it had a hard drive, but the hard drive was just big enough, you know, to run the computer. Uh, I want to say that might have been a uh, computer concepts system. Uh, that might be right. That might be right. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was Bernoulli uh, optical disc. Yeah. Hey, I, in fact, I remember, boy, this is bringing back memories. I remember I made a trip to visit the folks at Arrakis. Um, because at the time, as a contract engineer, I worked for a lot of stations that had very little budget, and they had an automation system that was, you know, fairly simple. And if you if you programmed it, and left it alone, uh, it worked pretty well. This was the uh, you know some early Arrakis uh, Digilinks, and I remember meeting with them and asking them, "Hey, when can we actually put music on the hard drive? You know, when can we have a hard drive big enough?" That it'll it'll hold music and and whenever whatever year I visited them they were like oh real soon that's coming you're gonna be excited about that you, not just the commercials but you'll be able to put the songs on the hard drive. <laughs> oh man, you know the one thing I, I remember about the Digilink system, uh, and I, I had one at a station I was a program director of was because of the limited uh, functionality because you only had like six CD changers with each one would hold six CDs were, you know, you kind of had to rotate these things in and out on a daily basis. So, you know, there were some songs that we'd only hear on Tuesdays because that was the day that that CD went into the change. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> and, and then you had this problem, if you actually cared about doing it right, you had this problem of you had to take your music scheduling program and it had to be aware uh, of what packs of CDs were in the changers on that day. So it would schedule the right CDs. Now, okay, that's, that's pretty bad, okay? But then, then we moved on to a problem that wasn't quite as bad. Uh, at my and a lot of stations had three of those Sony CD changers. They held, I, I think, 60 uh, CDs. And uh, they were serially controlled and had uh, consumer-level outputs on the back of them. And, you know, typically we'd bump that up to, uh, you know, professional-level balance. But um, your music scheduling program had to be aware of, you know, it couldn't play two songs back-to-back -back from the same CD changer. So that, right. when, it was, when it was scheduling songs, and that's a whole science into itself. We ought to do a show about that subject, because that's pretty interesting, the whole science oh, yeah. of song scheduling. Uh, you know, so you don't get, uh, you know, Celine Dion back-to-back. -back. I mean, you lose all your listeners that way, right? And uh, uh, so, did you guys catch that? Anyway, um, uh, 
There's all kinds of tests that it, you know, it'll pick a song and say, okay, did I play the same artist last hour? Did I, am I going to play this artist the next hour? Did I play this artist at the same time yesterday? Um, is this a female artist and do I really want to play it back to back with another female artist? Because sometimes some program directors and music directors think that's a bad idea. Uh, is this an oldie song and did I just play an oldie song? So it has all these tests it goes through. And one of them had to be, is this song even available to play right after the song I'm playing right now? <laughs> And you know, then, one of the, the other fallback. But, well, the other fallback to that is if you got the if you if you put the wrong cartridge in, you had the wrong set of CDs in there. It would think the the music system would think that that CD was in there and go to play it, and you'd either get a song that would play halfway through and fade because you know the song that was supposed to be there was shorter, or it'd play a track and a half and then then fade because you know the automation system had no way to tell for sure that you actually had the right one in there. Right, right. Oh my goodness, the problems that we used to have. It's it, you know, it's it's relatively easy nowadays, isn't it? All the songs are available. Anything can be scheduled back to back that you want to. They're all on hard drive, and you know most of us have them backed up somewhere. So, oh gee, the the trouble that we used to go to to, to you know just to have nobody in the control room <laughs> seems like a lot of trouble. Ay ay ay. So when when did we start using the first full up um, automation systems that really had music on hard drive? without any huge compromises that's probably the early 90s you know, you know when, say, when, when, hmm? when when you could get a hard drive that was that was pretty much big enough and the and you had computers where you could actually have various drives yeah because I, I remember even back in the days of dcs from computer concepts you could buy they sold rate arrays uh, that you could have multiple drives in a cage uh, and with their uh, aptX encoding and stuff, you could fit a decent amount of audio on those hard drives. And, you know, DCS has been around forever. So, yeah, I, I agree with Tom. I, I think as early as 92 or 93, I saw systems playing back music off hard drive. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I went to work for Scott Studios in 96. Yeah, I think it was 96, maybe 95. And at that time, they had music on hard drive, but they ha it hadn't been around that long at Scott Studios. Uh, just Two years, maybe three years prior, they were advertising an, an interesting concept. They thought it was interesting, where um, they would take your song from CD and move the data from the CD to a local hard drive uh, with about an hour's worth of music on the local hard drive, and then play that, play it back from the from the local hard drive. But it was, you know, stored. It was stored ephemerally locally, and you know, on CD. Uh, Back in the back in the server room, like just in time delivery. I don't know. That didn't last long. I didn't say that sounds really complicated. <laughs> I thought it was very complicated, but you know, at, when hey, when the biggest hard drive you can buy, you know, is uh, is uh, is what uh, um, a gig, um, then you know, what what do you do? Uh, uh, boy, uh, in fact, it maybe less than that. Ten or twenty meg. Yeah, this was after the 1020 meg days because uh, I, I bought 40 meg hard drives for my first uh, real computer. And when I went to work for Scott Studios, they were just selling 9 gig hard drives. And you could you, fit you, all you, your and, library on 9 gigs. And do you remember what those cost? They, were, they well, cost we, a fortune. Oh, we my charged $1,000 for them. But, yep. Yeah. Wow. Hey, let's, uh, let's move on in the uh, topical news. Uh, let's see. Um, somebody's getting made an example here. Uh, CBS, uh, CBS Communication Services um, 
is uh, getting uh, fined $1,000 for a, a tower light problem. The uh, FCC says an employee of its Los Angeles office saw the top beacon of their tower at West 190th Street and Prairie Avenue was unlit at 11.20 p.m. Uh, they contacted the FAA to determine if the outage had been reported. It had not been. And the FCC then requested that uh, the FAA issue a NOTAM, a notice to airmen. And then uh, the top beacon was also off the next night. So uh, let's see, the uh, state, the tower uh, is was being used by or is owned by KNX in Los Angeles. And uh, the right stuff wasn't on the logs. $10,000 for your tower light off. How, uh, how serious is your tower light off and not telling the FAA about it? Well, in That's the case of WR, it, it'd be real, real serious because we're in uh, the flight path for Newark International. Uh, oh. We're about four and a half miles out of there, and we're just off to the side of Teterboro uh, and two and a half miles from there. So it's it's pretty serious. I mean, the aircraft going into Newark dropped their uh, dropped their landing gear over the WR building. And we hate it when that happens because it puts a hole in the roof. Anyway. <laughs> There's got to be something to add to that. You did. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Tarf? Well, you know, you, I, I mean, there's no, there's never an excuse for that. I mean, and and we're all, you know, although we are all human and that happens, but you know, it's kind of frustrating when I hear something like this. Is generally, radio stations are, uh, broadcast stations are the ones who are really, really compliant with with tower stuff. Now, you know, I hear a story about that. Yet, I, I remember, I think it I believe it was last summer, the summer before, I was in Iowa driving up uh, the interstate. I think it was I thirty five or something, and. I literally counted seven or eight cell towers that had various lights out, either beacons or side markers or, you know, and I'd go back the next night and the next night and the next night while I was on vacation over there. And, you know, I mean, it's a very common thing I think I, I see a lot of with cell towers, especially where the lighting is, is broken or non-functional or, or just not right. And, you know, you see a story like this and it just kind of kills you because it's, you know, we have a historically have a very good record of, of you know, being on top of tower lights. But, you know, it is. It's 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 something you need to do. And, and in these days of automation and and uh, that sort of thing, it is something pretty could be pretty easily uh, forgotten about. You, you bring up a good point, Mr. Tarr, and that is that uh, I've traveled through, uh, when I used to live in Mississippi and take care of some radio stations there, I spent a lot of time traveling through Mississippi and Arkansas and West Tennessee. And one, one night I had the drive, or one day I had the drive, uh, yeah, evening, I had the drive from, uh, oh, from the Little Rock Airport back to my home in Mississippi. And I counted 12 cell towers with their lights operating improperly. And in almost, in every case, it was day, no, day mode at night. So you had these strobe lights operating in, and it, if you know what you're looking at, day mode is not hard to figure out. And these towers were all up, all 12 of these were uh, in day mode at night. That is freaking blinding. If you're a pilot, first of all, you, you don't want to see that. It, it's, it's bright. And second of all, it's day mode is one burst of light. Your eye can't fix on where the tower is if it can't see the vertical structure of the tower. And it can't at night because it's dark. Um, now, at night, you know, night mode is usually a, a, a burst of, of flashes. So your eye has time to go lock on to where this light is. So if you ever experienced that, you, you know how weird, disconcerting, unhelpful it is to have, you know, a, a tower in day mode at, at night. Um, and then there were other towers where I know the top red light was off if it was a red-lighted tower and the, and the obstruction lights were on. And, you know, th this goes on for months and months and months. Now, here's, here's what I'm getting to. My question is, if, if I don't know if anybody here would know the answer, what are the requirements for tower light checking and reporting for tower owners other than broadcasters is it the same as broadcasters is uh, oh, yeah. a cell no, tower owner or, or yeah, yeah, to check the tower the lights and report them out oh. 
Well, no, it's it's the same, and they and they have the same. They should have the same monitoring equipment, and uh, you know I know uh, ATC when they bought one of our towers, they installed their own monitoring equipment. Uh, but you know that yeah, it's it's the exact same rules we have to follow. It's I what is it thirty thirty minutes after dusk. Uh, Every day, tower lights have to be checked, and upon a failure, I don't remember what the time frame is. One of you guys probably know, uh, remember better than I do, but the time frame for reporting an actual outage uh, for a NOTAM. Not sure what that is yet. Uh, well, it's, 30 it, uh, the, it's 30 minutes after uh, you notice that the uh, light is out. So uh, if you're automated and you have a... Um, uh, you're supposed to have some type of a system that alerts you somehow, whether that means it calls out and gets a hold of somebody to say, hey, we've got a problem here, uh, if a tower light is out, uh, or if it sends you an email, however it does, it's supposed to alert somebody to check, and then to, you know, that person has to pick up the phone and make the phone call. Uh, in, the case, in the case of a station like WOR that's sitting there and is uh, manned 24-7, um, yeah, my my guys uh, check. Uh, they, they actually log readings every three hours, but they're every half hour they take a look, and if they see a tower light out, bang, uh, they call me. I can determine, you know, if, if it's a beacon or whatever, and then we pick up the phone and we make a phone call. And so yeah, my my yeah, my system's kind of you know our our towers are right behind our our building here, so they'll you know not only do they manually check, but I also have the remote control system. Uh, we have a, a I have a fairly new lighting controller that not only. Uh, you know, will alert me the minute there's a problem uh, with any of the lights, but also it's 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 a uh, the the it, it has to actively be pulled. So if for any reason, even the remote control can't talk to the I uh, can't talk to the controller. I'm al I'm alerted right away. So you know, it's one of those cases too where you know if the power goes out or you know any number of situations, if there's not a positive response from the controller, I immediately get a call that there's a problem. Now I think there's a a lot of. Um Oh, I can't, I won't say misinformation. There's a lot of different information that different people have about how often you have to check the tower lights. Fell in, in the chat room says, you need to check the lights and log every 30 minutes report a failure detected. Well, no, that's actually not the rule. Uh, my understanding of the rule, and I read it over several times back when I was uh, contract engineering people, was that you had to check the proper operation of the lights once every 24 hours. Now, this does open up a bit of a loophole. What if the towers don't come on at dusk and you check them every morning at 3 a.m.? Your, your overnight guy checks them at 3 a.m. and they work at 3 a.m., but they're not, but they're not, but you know, they're never working in the evening for some reason when they should be. That could be a problem, but I, I recall specifically that it's only required to actually check them once every 24 hours, and I don't recall ever having a requirement that they alert you automatically if they're not on when they should be on. Uh, no, if, if, if you're operating with an automated system, you, do, you have to have some way that the system alerts you if they're off when they're supposed to be on. What is um, an automated system? You mean if there's nobody there? or If, 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 there's, if there's nobody there, if, if the site is operating unattended. Ah, okay. Uh, in other words, there is nobody sitting there under, who has the site under control. Uh, the site has to alert somebody that the tower lights are out when they're supposed to be on. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, any, anyhow, I, I can tell you there's plenty of towers across this country that are owned by counties, cities, uh, emergency management agencies, cellular com uh, tower companies that aren't getting properly uh, monitored. And, 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 you know, broadcasters seem to take the, the, the brunt uh, of this. You know, the inspectors are, are, there, are there anyway. Um, hey, does the FCC inspect cell tower sites for proper licensure for uh, other things that the cell tower site may have to have? I don't know. My understanding is that they do, but sure. unless somebody calls, they probably don't go out. Yeah. Cell sites are everywhere. 
I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and whine, 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 but they do seem to check broadcasters. Um, uh, the, now, one thing that I think is positive is there are plenty of cell sites and other, other sites that are multiple use that are owned by some big companies that I think at least they're in a position to do a better job of monitoring like uh, companies like Crown Castle or a, I think, uh, Chris Tarr, you mentioned ATC, right? Yeah, yeah, they do. A, they do an excellent job. And here, here's one thing to remember too, as we're talking about you know inspecting of cell towers and you know broadcasters tend to get picked on a little bit. But one of the things that they're doing now that the, the FCC is doing uh, is is they're deputizing people like secretaries and office workers to come take a look at public files. And a lot of times, what you find there is if your public file is good you don't hear from them again for a while. If uh, things look kind of messy and your, your station logs, your public files aren't in order, then you'll get the field inspector visit. Uh, but, uh, you know, the FCC is so understaffed now that they kind of have to pick their battles. What's more likely? You know, where, where, are the, where are the problems and the dangers more likely, in a short little cell tower or in a 500-foot broadcast tower? And I think that's why, uh, you know, it, it seems like we're kind of unfairly targeted, but it makes a little sense if you look at kind of the risk factors there. Speaking of targeting... Uh, one of the attractive things about red flashing tower lights, if, uh, if you are drunk and have a gun, is it's pretty instant satisfaction to know that you've hit it successfully. <laughs> or I'm not saying drunk. I've ever done this. I'm just trying to get into the mind of people. You know, when the tower climber climbs the tower and says, we found three bullet holes in your coax in the vicinity of the beacon, and the beacon uh, has got two bullet holes in it. Uh, I, I, I want to mention real quick, I, uh, somebody in the chat room just mentioned that tower lighting is an FAA requirement, not an FCC. Uh, that's actually wrong. It is an FCC requirement as well. In fact, it'll say on your license that the structure must be marked and lit uh, per the FAA requirements. And if it's not, that's also an FCC violation. And, and Kirk, Gosh. those lights are also a lot of fun to uh, remove, from the, uh, remove from their sockets and drop down a 275-foot tower along with the lenses and the lighting fixture. I've had that happen uh, at a station uh, where we, you know, we had an apartment out back. They had a kegger over the weekend, and we, <laughs> came, in, we came in Monday morning. It's like, where the hell are the tower lights? <laughs> I mean, people at the kegger climbed the tower? and Yeah, they, they all, all five towers. Oh, wasn't gee. one bulb in them. Oh, gee. Now, I don't know if you, how, if you guys have done any tower climbing. I used to do some tower climbing. And I'll tell you, one of the real interesting, I'm going to say a joy of, of doing that kind of work is uh, I, I used to change the, the beacons and, and the side lights on a station uh, in, uh, in, in near Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, late in the afternoon, you climb in this tower. And I think this tower was about 400 feet tall. And I'd get to the top of the tower and, and you know latch on, be all secure, and and uh, open that that beacon and and the the, the, the tall beacon, the 300 millimeter code beacons uh, have a, a hinge in the middle. You undo a a, a a screw thing and you and you pull the whole thing open. You're at the top of the tower. There's nothing above you to grab onto. You are at the top, and so you you've got a couple of fresh light bulbs uh, either in a, probably in a sack that's tied uh, to your belt behind you, so you don't you know, ever crush it up against the tower while you're climbing. And so you, you, you're, you're going to take the old beacon out, right? So you reach in, and they're, they're a bayonet mount. You, you, you push them down slightly, you turn it counterclockwise uh, 90 degrees, and then it, it, the beacon comes out. And these things are kind of big. Uh, you know, they're, uh, a 620-watt a, a uh, bulb is, you know, almost a foot long. And um, what's, what's cool is you, you figure out which way the wind's blowing because you, you don't want to throw it into the wind and have it come back and hit the tower. Uh, you, I don't want to carry this beacon down. Um, uh, so... It's fun to throw anyway. So you just 
toss it over the side uh, in the direction that the wind's blowing and, and, and watch it go down. And from 400 feet, these things actually seem to take a while to hit the ground. It, it, and it, it's just so funny to watch the thing go. And finally, hit the grass. Nine times out of ten, it wouldn't break. If it would break, from 400 feet away, you just hear a like that. It's all you'd hear. But usually they hit the grass, they wouldn't break. You climb down the tower, you know, an hour later, and then there's the, you know, the whole bulb. You bring it home to wife. Hey, look at this. Uh, this is what I changed out today. It's a light bulb. Um, that, that, that's actually kind of a, a real joy to put those things in. Uh, it's a real pain, though, to put the new one in and, and, for, and then climb down and find out that it doesn't work. So it's best to do it with a couple people on site. Somebody turn the power on while you're up there. Hey, we got to take a break real quick here. We're going to come back with uh, actual, real, by golly, in the foxhole war stories. Uh, our program uh, today, this episode, is being brought to you by my friends at Telos. Uh, they're makers of the new Zephyr IP-1, the Zip-1, as they call it. Bert, throw the picture up there, please, if you would. This is the Zip-1. <laughs> it's, it's now shipping from Telos. What is it? It's an IP codec. And this is a cute little box. It's, uh, it's under a couple grand uh, list price, and, and I'm sure your dealer has it for uh, you know, some kind of discount. Uh, and it's, just, it's full of different, um, different coding algorithms. It has the most, uh, the most sophisticated algorithms from Fraunhofer, uh, AAC-ELD. That's AAC Enhanced Low Delay. And this is a really terrific algorithm for going out and doing remote broadcasts. If you're plugging into somebody else's uh, Ethernet, if you're using somebody else's Wi-Fi, uh, the, the box, the ZIP-1, does come with its with a, an approved Wi-Fi adapter guaranteed to work with the box. In fact, every one of them is tested at Telos. They make sure that uh, this Wi-Fi adapter works with this box. And um, uh, so you can take it out, use it with Wi-Fi. You can take it out and use it with a, with a, with a, a cord. Uh, there's 3G and 4G. Uh, some modems that, that do work, um, an approved list is coming out. But this thing's pretty amazing. In fact, I've got one. Let me see if I can show you here. Got one right here. There we go, right here on the uh, on the Kirk Harnack desk. Oh, let's get the mic cable out of the way. And so uh, we can uh, hit the uh, the speed dial button a, a couple of times. And I just connected to the KGO Studios in uh, wherever KGO is. How about that? We'll disconnect, and I'm going to tune into uh, another uh, one that I've got here at uh, at the Harnack Ranch. So I'm playing a public radio station here. I've even got, somehow I can even dial into uh, the WCBS studio. I wonder if Chris uh, Tobin knows anything about, uh, about this connection. I'm not sure it's, uh, it's on a port forward or not. It may take a few seconds to connect. But this is the ZIP-1. It has AAC, AAC low delay, AAC ELD. Oh, sorry about that. Guess we're, guess we're disagreeing on codecs. Go back to KGO. Um, it connects right up there. Pretty cool. You know, when I'm on the track... So, uh, it has uh, these different codecs, including MP3, AAC, um, MPEG Layer 2, uh, G.722, if you need that. It's also a SIP device, so you can call into it with a SIP phone. Um, so, it's a lot of, lot of cool applications there, and um, the people around the, around the world have been using these for uh, actually a couple of years now, and the predecessor, the, the Zephyr IP. So, the new Zip 1 uh, costs less than the original Zephyr IP. It's got more features and uh, I think more reliability. It's, it's, it's very, very cool. It's designed to negotiate and to deal with in real time changing internet connections. And in fact, here in my office, typically I have this connected up to a 4G modem 
just to call around and see how well it's going to stay connected uh, uh, typically for uh, days and days at a time, even over a 4G connection. So check it out from your favorite Telos dealer, or better yet, go to the Telos website at telos-systems.com. And there you go. There's the front panel. Uh, you can find the Zephyr IP um, page right there. It's easy to find. A whole list of features and, and, and uh, specs is right there on the, on the Zip1 page. And you'll see the connections for the, uh, for the front and the back. It does have two Ethernet connections on it. One of them is for your WAN connection. So that would be for you know, going out to the Internet. And the other one is for your LAN connection uh, so that if you have uh, Axie equipment and you're live wire equipped, well, you can just plug it right in there. That's where your live wire comes in and out. If you don't have live wire, no problem. It still has analog inputs and outputs on the back. And coming later this summer, it'll also have AES uh, digital connection on the back. Check it out. The Zip1 from Telos shipping now. I got mine. Now we're back to This Week in Radio Tech. All right, gentlemen, let's uh, make sure everybody knows who you are real quick. If you're just tuning in, Tom Ray from New York, the Hudson Valley. Howdy. Greetings. And uh, Chris Tobin from Manhattan. Hello, everyone. And Chris Tarr from uh, McWanago, Wisconsin. Howdy. So, guys, it's time to really hit up our, our war stories. And Chris Tarr, you seemed excited about uh, telling us about something, something from the trenches, something that got you dirty and... And uh, oh, yeah. where you, where you uh, learn it something. didn't really get me dirty. It's one of those where I'm just glad it wasn't one of my sites. <laughs> okay. I, went, uh, I happened to see the, this 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 transmitter site, and uh, I, I looked at it. And went, man, I could spend days fixing the problems that that I found with this place. Uh, to protect the innocent, I won't say where it is. I won't uh, make any mentions that would uh, let you track this down. But the the thing that kind of led me to go and see what was going on was. Uh, first thing I noticed was they, they had no left channel audio on the air. I was like, well, that's interesting. And uh, the other thing I noticed is you, you saw the, the stereo pilot light, and it was blinking. It was just kind of flashing. And I'm thinking, okay, I mean, if, if this is what this sounds like on the air, what I'm seeing here, I got to see what this, this site looks like. So I, I drive up there, and I'm looking around, and... and talking to another guy in the market who kind of knows the little history there. What it was, was they took the, the building itself was a building that this person had bought from another transmitter site and had it shipped and set it just right on the rocks uh, next to this tower. Uh, I guess he, he leased tower space that was co-located with a couple other things. So in the corner of this, this transmitter site plopped this building just right on the kind of right on the gravel. And uh, transmitters were inside. But the thing I noticed was a, a telco line coming out. It came out of the side of the building up to the fence and then ran along the outside of the fence line and then off to the D-mark. What I thought was interesting was the phone line was how they were getting their audio programming to the transmitter. So yeah. essentially they had a, a dial-up POTS connection because uh, it was essentially simulcasting another station. And that's how they're getting. So anybody could have taken the station off the air in seconds by just clipping this, this wire that they had running along uh, the fence line, uh, along this fence line. So, uh, you know, looking at this, this big picture uh, and how this, this all was put together, I said, well, you know, boy, uh, you know, this, these guys must be, you know, I mean, it must be an old station, you know, the, the, the deficiencies that, oh, no, no, they put it in like a year or two ago, and it's just been like that ever since. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just, I couldn't believe it. I did, you know, looking at all these things that, that could possibly go wrong, you know, water and rodents in the transmitter building, oh. uh, audio line, you know, telephone lines coming out of the, you know, out of the side of the building, running on the outside of the fence line, uh, you know, on the air, a channel missing and a stereo light flashing. And I, I just, I, obviously, the, you know, whoever owned the station put zero dollars into it and really couldn't, probably couldn't care less about, uh, you know, about its operation. It was just, it was stunning to me how, how many problems this site had. Either had zero dollars or obviously hired the wrong engineer to get the job done. Well, you know, I, I, I wondered about that, and I know most of the guys there, and, and I can't imagine that it was any of the guys I knew. Uh, you know, the only thing I'd think of is, is I know a little bit of history about the area, and it was an allocation that the guy uh, wanted at auction, and I think he was kind of battling just to keep his competitors out. So I think mm -hmm. it was one of those situations where, you know, he got it so no one else could get it, and then had to put something on as cheaply as possible. But I, it just was, it was stunning to me. The, the problems that I, I found at this site. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if I were an inspector, I, I can't imagine what I'd find, uh, you know, deficiency-wise in, 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 you know, inside of the building with transmitters and licensing and, and things like that. And again, that kind of goes back to, uh, you know, if, if your job is taking care of a transmitter site, uh, you know, if I were an FCC inspector, I, you know, the first thing I would be doing is going and paying these guys a visit just based on what I saw, you know, with the stereo light, what I heard on the air, what I saw at this site. Uh, the first thing that strikes my mind is somebody doesn't care. Ah, uh, well, yeah. Yeah. Did you figure out why the stereo light was blinking? Was there something wrong with the stereo generator? And was it even, they weren't trying to shove the composite through the POTS line, were they? You know, I, I actually, because again, it wasn't my station, so I didn't go in to do any work. Uh, it remains a mystery to this day. Uh, I, I was just more curious as to what, you know, it, it was. It was absolutely one of those things where I heard it heard it on the air and I saw this thing blinking and I went, if this is the way the product sounds coming out of the radio, I've got to see where this is coming from because I, I can only imagine what the place looks like. So I, I believe to this day, I think they've got two channels of audio now, but I still think to this day they have a flashing uh, stereo light. And, and it could be, uh, you know, the method that they're using to encode their audio. Wow. All right. Well, Mr. Tobin, you got any New York City stations like that? Oh, I can't say that. Uh, no, no, no. Everybody here in town is good, even, the, in, even on the outskirts, you know, when you're um, nearby like this. We, we really didn't get to have a, a pre-show um, pre uh, briefing uh, or discussion, so I, I don't know what you've got for us, Mr. Tobin, but uh, you said you had something for us, some kind of war story. Oh, I, something my war learn. story, my... my you know, it's uh, since we're in the city here, we don't have too many crazy transmitter stories I can go over. Since our transmitters are in the swamp, it's pretty much a given. Every time you go out there, <laughs> you will be uh, encountering something in nature, and you just got to be prepared. But now this one is uh, a classic. I think all of us have endured at some point in our uh, remote broadcast career, outside broadcasting. Uh, recently, St. Patrick's Day uh, here in New York City, as you may know or may not know, uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade is a very big event. It uh, travels uh, you know, up Fifth Avenue, and, uh, which is in the center of Manhattan. And uh, we do our broadcast literally at the front steps of the Cathedral of St. Patrick's uh, on Fifth Avenue. And we broadcast uh, our two news stations, 
um, do play-by-play, -play, if you will, or you know, man on the street. We talk to all those who visit. Yes, you can't really do a play-by-play -play for the parade. Wow, look at that. The band bagpipes go by with nice colors. Uh, actually, what we do is interview folks on the sidelines and, and find out more about what they're doing and what brings them by. So uh, our, our setup begins usually at 9 a.m. Eastern, and we arrive on site around 7.30. We get everything together. You know, it's myself and two other people and getting things organized. We set up our ISDN codec. We set up a mixer. You know, the usual fare. And about 8.30, I check in with the uh, tech center again and make sure everything is still working. Sounds great. Audio is in great shape. Go back to setting up the microphones for the, the reporters to use. We had wireless mics, uh, radio mics we're using for talking to folks on the sidewalk. And all of a sudden, I notice the IFB audio disappears. No cue audio from the studio. Like, well, that can't be good. Look at the ISDN codec. It says it's reconnecting. I'm like, okay. Took a hit on the line. Think nothing of it. Then all of a sudden, we notice... Line says the display says line down, <laughs> and then line you know line connected line down. So essentially, what happened is we start losing our ISDN connection. Only about thirty, not twenty minutes to go before air, and panic starts to set in. The local, the, the on-site producer is panicking. So as a friend of mine always likes to say, you know, you always have to have a plan B. You're out in the street, you have no control. You're at a remote site on location. You know, you always have to have plan B. So. Uh, out of the bag comes a laptop. I happen to have a piece of software for audio over IP. Turn it on, plug it in, had a USB mixer, plug that in, took the output of our tabletop mixer, feathered in over a 3G connection, on a Verizon 3G connection, through a laptop. We did our entire six-hour broadcast from the sidewalks on Fifth Avenue over a 3G connection while Verizon was feverishly trying to find out what happened to their underground trunking, trunking cables. Turns out oh. that they lost several pairs. And so one of them was lost. yours. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, oddly enough, there was that and two POTS lines that we normally have at the base of the lamppost that we broadcast from. So, yeah, I was, uh, you know, up until about uh, 9.06 when the first break took place, there was uh, panic and beads of sweat and everybody looking at each other and phone calls on cell phones trying to make something happen, and it worked out. It may not be that dramatic as... You know, flashing stereo lights and other things or transmitter sites where, you know, animals have, have bored a, a hole in the building and beside, decided to, you know, grow a family. But uh, it was definitely uh, something to be had. It was only by 9.45, 10 o'clock, we were interviewing the archbishop, the cardinal, and many other dignitaries. <laughs> so not to put pressure yeah, on anything. I, I think a good lesson there is, hey, if you need the broadcast to happen, have a plan B and have an engineer yeah. there to implement it. Uh, oh, yes, without a doubt. Uh, we, we do so many outside broadcasts every day, and, and Tom knows because his radio station with his format, talk format, we're constantly out and about, and I've got reporters in the field every day. Plan B and Plan C is something we literally do uh, as a matter of course. It's just second nature for us. And uh, any event we do, whether it be large or small, there's always a Plan B. Matter of fact, today, the LTE network for Verizon, you know, their version of 4G, Went down yeah. nationwide. Oh, what? Really? Yeah. So if you had an LTE phone, say like the Thunderbolt, as I do, you would have yeah. had no data service. Uh, you'd have to f fail back or f make it fall fail over to 3G. Well, we have uh, you know dozens of oh, the horror. Oh, the horror is right. But this morning we had some <laughs> problems with our reporters okay. getting live to air. Ah, okay. Well, that okay. That is a problem. No. <laughs> 4G modems on their laptops stopped functioning. And oh. the plan B was they have a 3G uh, card uh, and instructions also on the 4G card how to switch over to 3G. And you know, yeah. that's what we did. 
So for us, it was uneventful on the air. You know, the listener had no idea that the network was down and we were being, uh, you know, scrambling, so to speak. But, you know, that's the kind of thing you have to do. You've got to have a plan B. And uh, when you're outside your comfort zone of your studio or maybe transmitter facility, plan Bs work very well, and sometimes plan C. Speaking of plan B, a man who has spent most of his life being plan B, Tom Ray's here. <laughs> Tom. Tom. <laughs> what? Hello. Sorry about that. Uh, did we catch it? Did, Tom, I'm sorry. Did, did we catch it a bad time? We can come back later. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm fine. Uh, station is on the air, so that's <laughs> uh, what counts. I'll have to check the other things in a few minutes. Uh, anyway, uh, no, we we had a uh, uh, Chris was talking about. Uh, it, well, both Chris's uh, kind of mentioned uh, creatures or things that show up at the transmitter site. Um, I used to take care of a uh, of a set of stations down in St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands, and uh, matter of fact. Uh, built a couple of them and on the FM station the FM transmitter was on St. John it was actually just about the middle of the island and if you've ever been down there there's not a heck of a lot on St. John so uh, we had a, uh, a Harris uh, FM transmitter it was a uh, dual platinum so uh, 10 kilowatts aside that combined to 20 kilowatts to go up the pipe and uh, the center cabinet was where the exciters were and it was where the remote control uh, connections were and you know, basically it was cold. I mean, it was low voltage in there, uh, so, you know, t uh, 24 volts or less. So you could, you could work in the cabinet while the station was on the air. And we had the station on the air this one day, and we were finishing uh, up some connections on the remote control. I'm up there with their chief engineer, and uh, all of a sudden we hear this knock on the door. Now, you have to picture this. The transmitter building is up on top of this hill. There's a road literally... Oh, it was like this angle to get up there. Mm -hmm. So if you drove up the, that road and went behind the building, which is where you could park, from, this, well, from the road down, down the, the uh, bottom, which I, which I put in quotes because it, it was dirt, um, you, could, you could barely see the building, never mind the car if you were parked behind it. And we were parked mm -hmm. behind the building. So we're kind of looking at each other going, who the hell's coming up here, you know, in the middle of nowhere? So really? The There's somebody knocking at the door here? Really? Yeah, somebody pounding at the door. Yeah. It's like, so we, we open the door, and there's this guy standing there with his wife and his two kids. And he, he pulls out an ID. He, he was from the phone company. He worked in the microwave division. He says, you know, he says, I, I, I know the tower is up here. He says, and I saw your car, and we're sitting there looking at each other going, well, that's kind of bunk because you can't see the car from the road. Uh, but... You know, he, he had some interesting questions, wanted to see the transmitter, and we actually spent about 45 minutes talking shop with the guy, and, uh, you know, he was talking microwave, but, he, you know, he'd never seen anything this high power, and we had a very nice conversation, and uh, he thanked us, you know, and, and then they went to leave, and right before he walked out the door, he says, oh, by the way, he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out the watchtower. Ah. He was, he was a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> well, sounds like a darn good Jehovah's Witness if he's knocking on transmitter doors. Oh, it was funny. You know, so we each gave him like five bucks, and he went on his way, and we made sure they were well out of earshot, and we were on the floor. It's like, oh, my God. We're up here in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That, I, that guy's dedicated. I mean, we need, you know, whoa, we, we need more people in the world dedicated like, you know, like that to do their job, whatever it is. Oh, that oh was gee, that's a good story. Hey, uh, uh, that's a good story. And Mr. Tar, you had something that you wanted to add in, I think, didn't you? No, but uh, it actually dovetails. Uh, speaking of uh, Harris transitors and exciters, uh, 
I had a, a station that uh, you know has been around for a while and had they had some older transmitter, uh, transmitting equipment. Uh, to give you an idea of the age, uh, the transmitter was a 20H3. So pretty old stuff. And uh, it had been going along fine for years, and it was time to put in a new audio processor. Great, you know, I mean, if they had an old Optimon 8000, you know, and uh, just, I was excited to get something in there that was somewhat modern. So we bought your basic modern processor, which at the time I believe was uh, like a, an Optimod uh, 8200, something like that, the very first digital version of, of uh, Orban's processor. And uh, got it all wired up, turn it on, music starts playing, big old bass note. Transmitter shuts off. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Turn it back on again. Cruising along. Base note comes on. Boom. Transmitter comes back off again. Uh, it turns out that the, uh, the as, as most of you have probably experienced, uh, the, the exciter was an old Harris MS15 that oh. didn't have the uh, the uh, dual lock PLL. So what happened is the base notes would come through and unlock the PLL or the AFC, rather, and unlock the, the frequency of the exciter, which would cause the transmitter to trip. <laughs> <laughs> I so, noticed in, in the yeah. chat room, the first guy with the right answer was Bill Sachs. He says, AFC loop. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what it was, the AFC loop. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it would unlock the AFC loop and the transmitter would shut off. And uh, it was the first case I've ever been uh, dealt with where I actually had to go back to an older technology for a while. So I had to... And put the uh, yeah, there's there's well I knew Bill would know that you know yeah. Bill Mister Optimod you know if anybody would know that uh, um, but uh, we actually had to go back to the the Optimod eight thousand for a while and yes, uh, you yes. know, back in the day you could actually you know you could get a retrofit kit to for the MS fifteen that would upgrade that to uh, what was called at that time the MX fifteen that that actually had, was able to do that but right. uh, you still see warnings if you look at the old manuals for those transmitters about uh, you know anything with excessive base and uh, uh, base in it could could unlock the AFC on the exciter. You know this is actually a, 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 another good teachable moment and I, we've chatted about it when we talked about uh, when we had a show about FM modulation but what what Chris is talking about here is this really interesting design dichotomy with uh, FM exciters on the one hand. You know, the whole nature of FM is we have this carrier frequency and we want to move it up and down and up and down the dial. Uh, so we move the frequency at the rate of the audio that's modulating it, right? Well, um, but the other uh, goal here is that we want to keep the uh, frequency coming out of the exciter averaged on whatever your frequency is. So let's say your station is 98.1 megahertz. Well, that carrier is supposed to be you know, sit averaging at 98.1, but we want to move it, you know, up and down and up and down and up and down. And so there's a circuit in there, an automatic frequency control, AFC, that applies a, if this gets too far out, to the, out of the way here, too far off 98.1, the AFC voltage pulls it back in. And there's a, there's a loop that it operates in to, to, to keep everything, uh, you know, copacetic and uh, uh, hunky-dory. Well, if a base note comes along that is, beyond the capability of the AFC loop to hold things together, you know, we get this boom, we get this, uh, this excursion of the frequency, and then the AFC goes, oh, well, I'm out of lock. I don't know what to do now. Uh, so they, when they started designing you know, processors that could put through some really thumpy bass, uh, they, had to, they had to think about the design of FM exciters and make the AFC circuits a little bit more intelligent, like a, like a dual-speed uh, AFC circuit. And nowadays they have completely digital exciters, too, that that can uh, re reduce uh, or el eliminate this this problem. But I've I've experienced that that issue uh, myself, especially especially with um, 
It seems back in the day, uh, well, foreign-made exciters seem to have that problem fairly often, but the, the better uh, U.S.-made ones, uh, you know, they got that problem solved. Well, Chris, I'm glad you glad you got that fixed. I got I got a real quick story for you. Then we got to go. Uh, if you want to obtain the rights to use some land in American Samoa uh, to put your transmitter, you, you, at one point you had to talk to this guy. Let me see if I can get that focused. How's that looking? Yeah, that is Kirk Harnack in 1996, standing next to Samoan Chief Fuyamono. I was going to say the guy uh, on the right looks great, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize. Uh, I can tell you that I recognize the hair. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, had a, I had a lot of it. Here's another. Here's another picture. You, not only did you have to meet with Chief Fuyamono, you uh, you really had to meet with the whole family. And so there's my uh, business partner Larry Fuss, uh, with the, the guy with uh, losing his hair, and then uh, then there's the lady who I think was uh, his uh, his daughter, and then granddaughter. And the the cottage that is behind us in the photo, um, there's a tomb in there. And we, um, when Larry and I first came to American Samoa, we saw all these tombs uh, out in front of people's yards. We didn't know what was going on. And Larry made a joke. He says, ah, oh, they probably bury the grandma in the front yard. Well, we, uh, we had a very pleasant uh, Sunday morning breakfast with uh, Chief Fuyamono. And he took us through his uh, yard. And he's very well-to-do Samoa. He was the first elected U.S. representative from American Samoa to the U.S. Congress. Uh, didn't have uh, voting rights, but I think he could introduce bills, or maybe he couldn't. I don't know. They can now. Uh, so uh, he took us around the property and showed us where the chickens are and where the pigs are. And, and uh, then we, uh, Larry said, well, um, uh, Chief, uh, who's, uh, whose tomb is that in, uh, in that building right there? And, uh, and there's another picture of the, the building. And the chief says very proudly, oh, that is my grandmother. So, oh, well, that is that is who's buried out front. Well, it turns out the way Samoans, and I'm I'm generalizing here, okay, so maybe I got the story a little bit wrong, but generally speaking, the way Samoans lay claim to the place where they live, because they, they can't buy property. They'll, they think the land is the land, and so they don't buy and sell property. It's it's in the family. But if you, you know, want to establish a home and, and it's call it yours, well, you just bury a relative out front. I mean, who's going to make you move, right? So um, wow. that's, so we had to talk to Chief Floyamono, and we um, uh, actually, uh, we were told it'd be a real good idea if you went to church with him, and uh, he'll be more likely to uh, help you get that land. So Larry and I went to church with him and on that Sunday morning and uh, uh, had a great time, the terrific singers, and uh, we ended up getting, eventually, uh, the rights to rent the land. But that was tough to do. So wow. that's my war so story. Who do, you, who do you have buried in front of your transmitter building? <laughs> That's the problem. They can kick us off any time. We got nobody buried out front. Well, I, th I think it's time to sacrifice the program director. Uh, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll uh, run that up the flagpole and see how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we are we are out of time. I've had a delightful time on this episode. Thanks very much for uh, for your stories and talking about the the topical subject we had to talk about. Uh, I think you know. I think a great subject for a show coming up, and I've got so many ideas. I just got to get these people scheduled and find folks to talk about it. Um, is this notion uh, that um, um, which one of you, uh, Tom, uh, talked earlier about combining two transmitters? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, these are two FM transmitters, right, Tom? Yeah, th these are two FM, but you can do it with AM too. You can. You can. Uh, but yeah. it's not terribly uncommon to come to take 
two FM transmitters of a medium to large capability and combine their outputs for double the power and then send that up to the antenna. And there's some good reasons do for doing television it. transmitters too. Ah, yes, you can, absolutely. Uh, uh, but there's also uh, some interesting complications in getting that done and doing it right because, believe me, two transmitters don't want to look at each other, not directly. And so there's a, there's a way to combine them where neither transmitter is aware that the other one is there, and yet their power gets combined. And that's Kinda a like pretty interesting... like my marriage. <laughs> 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 oh! He'll be here all week, oh, folks. Try the beef tips. And don't forget to tip the wage staff. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, our show, episode 80 of This Week in Radio Tech, has been brought to you by the folks at Telos Systems and the new uh, Zip1 IP codec. It's pretty cool, and it's getting cooler, and it's shipping now, and I, I got one right here next to me. I've been tuning in, uh, unbeknownst to them, I've been tuning in the KGO studios and the WCBS studios. They got them in their studios, so anyway. Check it out on the web. Uh, go to telus-systems.com and click the button for the Zip 1. Thanks a lot. I appreciate Burke very much. And uh, my uh, co-host, Partners in Crime, thank you for being here. Tom Ray from the Hudson Valley of New York. Appreciate you. Thank you, Sir Kirk. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, thanks for having me. And you can uh, meet Tom Ray at W2TRR.com. Also, That's right. uh, Chris, uh, Chris Tobin, uh, the best-dressed engineer in radio from Manhattan, New York. He's at CBS Radio. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome, Kirk. And by the way, just one thing about the patents we talked about earlier with automation litigation. Anybody yeah. know about the multimedia time warping system? It's a patent. I'm serious. You use it probably at home. TiVo. TiVo. DVRs. <laughs> wow. That's a, it's a multimedia time warping system. Time warping system. <laughs> That's what I'm reading it off the U.S. patent site right now. Oh, so if you goodness. think this litigation is goofy... Go talk about a time-warping system for your, uh, your TV programs. You know, these people who litigate this stuff, you just want to say, look, just go invent something if you could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the opinions expressed here are those of the participants um, and not necessarily those of their em employers uh, or wives. And also Chris Tarr uh, from uh, Muckwanago, Wisconsin. Thanks for being here, Chris. Appreciate you very much. Thanks for having me. And you are at the uh, geekjedi.com. That's correct, sir. All right, we'll see you there. Hey, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks to Burke, and we will see you next week on This Week in Radio Tech. Bye-bye.